Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Let me just say good morning to those in the United States, especially Tabitha, who is up very early. And good evening to those in China. Especially appreciate President Wu and Zhu Feng joining us、uh, so late in the evening, and it will be even later by the time、uh, by the time we conclude.、Um, this program、uh, is the first one that we're doing on this important issue of U.S.-China maritime conflict and dispute management in the South China Sea.、Uh, all of you see in the, the newspapers these days. The waters of the South China Sea have become a flashpoint for the intensifying U.S.-China rivalry, raising concerns about the potential for a military clash. We've got five outstanding panelists with us today, all of whom are good friends of mine, and all of whom participate in the Track Two dialogue, which we've been running. For many years, with the South China Seas Institute,、um, which even in this difficult environment、uh, shows that experts in the area can find a way, even in this difficult political environment, to talk rationally about constructive ways we can try and resolve、uh, these issues in the South China Sea. I don't want to spend time going over. The bios of everybody, because we've got a ton to talk about. So let me just give one sentence introductions of where they are, and then and then kick off the discussion.、Uh, Wu Shichun, as I think everybody on this call knows, is president of the Na- China's National Institute for South China Seas Studies.、Uh, Taylor Fravel is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the. Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Tabitha, thank you, Tabitha, for getting up so early. Tabitha Grace Mallory is founder and CEO of the China Ocean Institute and affiliate professor at the University of Washington's Henry Jackson School of International Studies. Zhu Feng is the executive director. Of the China Center for Collaborative Studies of the South China Sea, and director of the Institute of International Relations at Nanjing University, and Peter Dutton is a professor at the Strategic and Operational Research Department at the U.S. Naval War College. So let's kick it off with President Wu. Each of the speakers will speak for, you know, five minutes more or less. I think because we only have two Chinese, we have three Americans. We'll give President Wu、uh, and Zhu Feng an extra minute or two、uh, to go on, so that it will be equal、uh, amongst between the two sides. But looking forward to your comments, we've already gotten some wonderful questions for our audience. Not only is the panel very distinguished, but the attendees is also a very sophisticated group of、uh, listeners and watchers. So, President Wu, it's wonderful to see you again. I'm、okay. sorry I can't visit you in in Sanya or in Haiko.、Um, yeah. I miss the good weather, the company, and and、uh, the good food. 
but let me turn it over to you first. Okay, thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in this wonderful dialogue with my American colleagues on the South China Sea issue. Uh, well, in my presentation, I'm going to look at the two issues. Uh, the first is about the current South China Sea situation. Uh, the second is about uh, on how to manage the conflicts between China and the United States in the South China Sea. Uh, about the current South China situation, uh, I would say, compared with the past, there are some new volatile and worrisome developments in the South China Sea this year. Uh, first, economies in this region have been hit by COVID-19 to different degrees. Governments have shifted their attention from maritime cooperation and the negotiations on the COC in the South China Sea to economic recovery and job creation. Second, the comprehensive deterioration of China-US relations has made those two countries more confrontational uh, on the South China Sea issue, which can be seen in their totally opposite rhetorics and actions in the political, diplomatic, and the military fields. Uh, if we look at the phenomena conducted by the United States so far this year, uh, it was uh, eight times, and also uh, the statement uh, of the US South China Sea policy made by uh, State Secretary Michael Pompeo, uh, I think it could be viewed as a turning point of the US South China Sea policy. It means that uh, the neutrality of the South China Sea policy is no longer of the US policy. The third, climate states have taken unilateral actions one after another, such as aggressive demonstration of sovereign oil and gas development in these particular areas, and the diplomatic statements to reinforce unilateral actions. Uh, for instance, the diplomatic statements made by multiple countries so far, uh, altogether 40, uh, 24, 24 uh, diplomatic, uh, diplomatic uh, notes uh, delivered to the United Nations by countries, uh, including China and the five member states of ASEAN, United States, Australia, uh, Britain, uh, France, and uh, Germany. Uh, and uh, also, the driving forces uh, behind uh, those unilateral actions, from my perspective, are as follows. China's growing capability of upholding its rights in the South China Sea is the primary triggering fact, uh, leading to the increasing sense of insecurity among other climate states the narrow window for the COC negotiations, the US abandoning of its neutral policy towards the South China Sea, and the negative impact of South China Sea arbitration loading. Fourth, the crisis management mechanism between China and the United States may fail. Uh, and the expanding gray zone may increase the risks of China US conflicts in the South China Sea. Uh, the, uh, the, the gray zone uh, 
mean their Coast Guard's law enforcement activities, maritime Malaysia, even IUU fishing activities. First, it has become uncertain whether the steel sea negotiations will be concluded on time because it, it is supposed to have four working groups meetings and two senior official meetings this year because uh, the COVID-19, uh, so far nothing happened, so uh, it is uncertain uh, where uh, the steel sea will be concluded in the second meeting of the COC text by end of this year. Outside the extra regional countries keep intervening in the South China Sea affairs without restraint by the COC in the future. So the law of the COC in maintaining stability and managing crisis in the South China Sea will be questionable. So when it comes to the practice and the trends affecting the South China Sea in the future, the U.S. presidential election will have an impact on U.S. policy on the South China Sea. Uh, if Joe Biden is elected, the U.S. policy will be different. At least the, the military operations, such as freedom navigation, will not be completed, decided by the military without restraint by the U.S. administration. Uh, for some current states, uh, the Malaysia government as a weaponist position, Vietnam is going to have a new leadership after the 13th National Congress of the Communist Party of Vietnam uh, at the first quarter of next year. And the Philippines will have a new president after election in 2022. So new leaders in these countries are expected to make an issue of the South China Sea in order to consolidate their basis for leadership. It is expected that the COC negotiation will not be smooth sailing. The US facts, the interference of arbitration decision, the less willingness and the sense of urgency among other current states to reach consensus with China may delay the COC negotiation process. The United States, Japan, India, and Australia are strengthening their quarter cooperation and expanding their security cooperation in the South China Sea. So this will militarize greater power competition in the South China Sea and uh, make it more urgent to build a multilateral crisis management mechanism. Closer cooperation between the United States and the Taiwan and the Taiwan's southbound policy may make Taiwan a liability for China's men and the young Holy's rights in the South China Sea. As the United States has just mentioned, adjusted its policy towards the South China Sea, and the President Dutat of the Philippines is approaching the end of his term, the arbitration ruling will be revived again and become a factor to undermine the stability in the South China Sea. So in short, in my opinion, the South China Sea will undergo a new round of volatility in the next three to five years, a period which is more unpredictable, precarious, destructive, and military-oriented. Second, uh, my personal suggestions on managing conflicts between China and the United States in the South China Sea. Given the all-round confrontation between China and the United States, 
official dialogues, uh, including meal to meal, have come to a halt. Lack of mutual trust has weakened the binding force of existing crisis management mechanisms. Let me give you an example. The accident, you know, uh, was happening in September 13th, 2018, between the two destroyers of United States and China. Uh, it means that in some special times, special occasion, the existing crisis management between China and the United States may not be workable. And uh, also the gray zone is expanding with no consensus, no mechanism, and no restriction. The risks for conflicts and frictions caused by misunderstanding and misjudgment are higher than any time before. So in this context, I would like to put forward the following suggestions. First, the United States should abide by its commitment to keep it neutral on the South China Sea question, rather than just holding no position on territorial sovereignty of islands and reefs. Given the background and the causes of the South China Sea issue, claims to islands and reefs shall not be separated from those two maritime waters. Support for one country's claims to maritime waters, in fact, means support for its claim to islands and reefs. Therefore, it is not viable for the United States to hold no position on sovereignty of islands and reefs. Support for one country's maritime claim, in fact, is actually taking side. Second, my second suggestion, the United States should cut its military operations in South China Sea in order to reduce risks of military conflict with China there, for example. The United States should exercise restraint. We, President, the, we, we, we need to you need to wrap wrap it up. Yep. Restraint uh, uh, on freedom of navigation, closing uh, reconnaissance, military exercise, and building military bases on around the South China Sea. In response, what China should do? China shouldn't deploy offensive weapons in its islands and reefs and not announce the establishment of ADIP over the South China Sea. Third, the two countries should establish a meal-to-meal dialogue at the commander level and covering military operations in South China Sea, and discuss the establishment of full coverage of its crisis management in the South China Sea, particularly on the application of the code of uh, unplanned encounters at sea, applied to the Coast Guard and the Coast Force, the United States should speak twice before it introduces a court called security cooperation into the South China Sea. Fifth, the United States shouldn't make use of Taiwan in the South China Sea question to undercut China's rights and interests in South China Sea because this will increase tensions across the Taiwan Strait and make the situation in the South China Sea more complex due to the confrontation uh, across the Taiwan Strait. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you for attending. Okay. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> there, there's, 
there's a lot, if, if some of the US, I mean, I can start responding to some of this, but I, I will go on to the next, uh, to Taylor who's next. But I think if the US um, speakers can start to respond to some of the, the aspects, I'll be happy to do it when everybody's finished speaking, but there's some things in there which are rather, in my view, controversial. Uh, Taylor. Great, um, thanks to the National Committee uh, for having me and thanks to uh, our colleagues uh, from China uh, for joining us uh, in the evening their time. So in my five minutes, I wanted to make just a few points. I think so some of them, which we'll be reflecting on sort of the current situation in the South China Sea may overlap with a little bit of what was just said. Um, but I'll try to put an American spin on it or an American perspective. So my first point, right, is, is that we need to take a step back and, and just reflect on the context in which we are now uh, thinking about uh, the South China Sea and its future, right, which is the really significant decline in U.S.-China relations over the past few years, but which has really accelerated uh, in uh, 2020. So uh, according to Pew Research, right, the percentage of Americans who view China negatively has increased from 47% to 78% uh, in the last five years. So this, th th this is a pretty grim situation in some respects when trying to think about managing a complex issue by the South China Sea. Now, the good news perhaps is that the South China Sea has not necessarily been the most prominent issue in certainly American perceptions of uh, US-China relations. These include trade, technology, Xinjiang, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's bad news here, uh, which does have implications for how uh, the South China Sea can be managed. I think there's gonna be uh, sort of a perceptions of, of higher uh, domestic costs to be paid for cooperative actions or even confidence uh, building measures or stability management measures. And there's also uh, sort of within the United States, perhaps uh, given the overall uh, sort of low state of the relationship with China, but also I think there'll be perhaps perceived uh, reputational costs for for, for doing so as well. And so I think uh, the imperative here, uh, given, given the way in which the overall relationship is declining is to focus on what at a base sort of a bare minimum level would be kind of the shared interests uh, or the common interests of the US and China and the other claimants in the South China Sea upon which some basis of uh, stability uh, can be maintained uh, for the coming uh, period, which as uh, Dr. Wu mentioned is uh, volatile. So my second point is that I think uh, from a U.S. perspective, right, the, the, the disputes in the South China Sea have sort of transformed or been transformed from a more narrow sort of contest over sovereignty and jurisdictional claims to a much wider issue involving status and hegemony uh, in Southeast Asia. And this goes back to some of the actions that certainly um, attract a lot of American attention, most notably the island building in 2014 and 15 and the power projection facilities uh, that China was able to uh, build out as a result. And then more recently, actions that are challenging uh, the hydrocarbon activities of littoral states within their coastal EEZs, not with any EEZs that they might claim from any of the disputed islands, but actually EEZs uh, that they claim from their coast. And in these areas, of course, it sort of overlaps with China's nine dash line, which raises real questions about the legal basis uh, for uh, China's actions here, which appear to be historic rights, but have not necessarily been fully articulated by China. And so in the last few years, we've seen uh, Chinese harassment of, of uh, drilling operations and uh, Chinese uh, surveys within the EEZs of Vietnam and Malaysia. Uh, for this reason, of course, ASEAN has, uh, took a particularly uh, strong stand this summer in some of its joint statements, underscoring uh, the importance of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea as a way of kind of challenging um, uh, this idea of historic rights. 
And then more generally from a US perspective, of course, uh, some of the language that China included into the first uh, negotiating text for the COC, I think raised some alarm bells. Specifically, right, China included language that was designed uh, to include the signatories or ASEAN and China from conducting military exercises with quote, countries from outside the region. This sort of appeared to be uh, sort of deliberately designed to exclude the United States, thus kind of transforming uh, the more narrow disputes into something to, to sort of a, a broader set of questions about uh, uh, Southeast Asia uh, more generally. Thirdly, uh, turning to US policy, um, as uh, Dr. Wu mentioned, right, uh, continuation of the, of the Freedom of Navigation Program eight so far this year after eight were conducted in 2019. And this has sort of been a hallmark of, I think, the Trump administration's approach, although I think year on year they appear to be increasing a little bit in frequency. And then, uh, as was mentioned, right, the emphasis and elaboration of U.S. support for the tribunal in its 2016 ruling in the July statement uh, made by uh, this, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo. Um, now, I, this didn't substantially alter the U.S. sort of position on the ruling, which was articulated back in 2016 by the State Department, but it was much more public and much more vivid uh, and, and, of course, was framed around uh, the language of deteriorating uh, U.S.-China relations. Um, I do want to interject here quite sort of quite briefly just to flag it for later. I don't believe this uh, statement on maritime claims represents a change in US uh, a sort of position or, or the US position regarding neutrality in the South China Sea, which focuses on claims to land features. And I don't think uh, neutrality links uh, land features and maritime claims, largely because the maritime claims uh, by the other states, especially Vietnam and Malaysia, are not based upon uh, disputed islands, but in fact, based upon their coastlines. Right. Um, other elements of, of U.S. policy that are new uh, sanctions announced in August on state or enterprise linked entities that were involved in land reclamation about five years ago. And in this sense, these two U.S. policies in some ways are retrospective. I think that they could be interpreted as a reaction uh, both to land reclamation and to the, to, to the tribunal, not necessarily uh, current events. But what is new uh, um, in particular, I think, is the fact that U.S. Uh, uh, naval vessels have been showing up more frequently uh, within the, the EEZs of Vietnam and Malaysia, particularly when hydrocarbon activity, uh, uh, hydrocarbon exploration activity is occurring. And so in May, you had a US littoral combat ship near the West Capella, which was a rig in uh, Malaysia's EEZ. And then uh, earlier this fall, or sorry, back in July, the United States also uh, was present in uh, Vietnam's uh, EEZ when China was conducting a survey there. So I think that takes me over five minutes. I had one more point, but I'll save that for uh, the Q&A. Back to you, Steve. Great. That, uh, yeah, and that deals with some of uh, President Wu's issues that he's raised. Uh, Tabitha. Yeah, so likewise, thank you for having me. Thanks to the National Committee and to my fellow, fellow panelists. Um, I'm going to talk about the marine living resources because these are both a basis for conflict in the South China Sea and are also an issue that many hope have, has the potential to bring people together. And so in preparing these remarks, kind of like Taylor, I was thinking about, you know, what's, what's a bare minimum area of cooperation and also trying to think of something optimistic to say about these issues. And so, you know, can we identify some areas in which the US and China have common interests? And I noted that both countries share in common a criticism of each other's environmental policies. So yesterday, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued a fact sheet detailing environmental damage caused by the United States 
which is in response to a similar fact sheet that was issued by the US State Department about a month ago on China's environmental abuses. And I would say that both sides are largely correct in their assessments. And so this brings me to the question of, you know, what, what should a country do when its leadership is being you know, maybe just merely rhetorical or even on the opposite end of the spectrum, hypocritical uh, on some of these important issues. And so one thing I was thinking of is that this is not the only solution, but I think one important, important contribution is to turn to thinking about positive things that we can do outside the government while we are awaiting leadership that is more conducive to making progress because I don't know that at the government level, there is much potential for that at the moment. Uh, but I do think that we can make plans for when the moment is right. And in the area of marine environment and fisheries management, I am more optimistic. Uh, for example, I was on a call last week with a Chinese fishery scientist who pointed out that China lacks robust communication channels between its scientific research community on the one hand and the policy community on the other hand in China. And so that's a really important issue when you're thinking about best practices for managing you know, these environmental resources. And it's an area in which the academic and think tank communities can be of some use. This is also an area where the US could make some progress. We don't do this perfectly either. Um, so it's, you know, it's an area where we can uh, have more discussion and dialogue. And then even in areas where the government is taking the lead. Uh, so you know, for example, both the US and China have recognized the need to better address illegal unreported and unregulated or IUU fishing. And you know, so can we think about making some progress on how to handle cases of IUU fishing perhaps progress on developing the technology that we need for monitoring and surveillance of coastal waters, more progress on identifying points of contact and protocols for handling this. And you know, to kind of you know, get back to uh, Dr. Wu's point about thinking about the mechanisms that we have in place to manage conflicts, and you know, I think this is thinking about fisheries management is one of them, but more broadly, you know, the mill-to-mill -mill dialogue cues. You know, I think it's important to think about, uh, you know, how are these existing mechanisms possibly failing us? In which ways could they be improved? And I think we can have that same kind of thinking for managing the living resources too. And so that brings me to the next question, which is what is the next smallest thing that can be done on managing marine living resources? And I'll say at the outset that this is complicated because there's no one solution for all species and all areas of the South China Sea. And you need separate solutions for species like tuna and squid versus species that are harvested through bottom trawling. There is an existing regional fisheries management organization or an RFMO for tuna. This is the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission. So that legally covers the South China Sea, but doesn't do so in practice. And then a species like squid is not regulated at all at the international level. But if you're thinking about a management solution for fisheries as a way to switch the paradigm on thinking about sovereignty issues, as this, you know, this has been brought up before. So these are ideas in you know, these post-sovereignty or meta-sovereignty ideas like a peace park or some kind of international marine protected area. You need not just an RFMO, but an area-based management solution because an RFMO just manages the resources. 
while an area-based management solution is tied to a geographical area. So it's, it's kind of one way you could sidestep a sovereignty issue uh, over a given feature. But of course, a solution like this will not solve the maritime boundary disputes between the Nine Dash Line that China claims and the EZs of the other claimant states. Uh, and you know, Taylor was talking about some of the uh, harassment that's been going on on the part of the Chinese uh, for the hydrocarbon facilities in the EZs of the claimant, the other claimant states. And this also goes on with the fisheries, of course. Uh, so you know, trawlers that are in Indonesians, uh, the Indonesian EZ. Uh, will have Coast Guard uh, accompaniment in other countries as well. Um, and so those still remain to, to be resolved. But if countries were to implement some kind of multilateral arrangement on a limited scale in, you know, in a limited area in the South China Sea as an experiment, this might possibly illuminate some next steps, um, ways to handle other issues. Uh, there's also a difference between industrial fishing and the artisanal or subsistence level fishing that goes on in, in the coastal areas. The industrial fleet receives huge subsidies. That's an issue that, that needs to be resolved. Uh, and so next year, the Chinese are hosting the meeting on the Convention on Biological Diversity. And I could see that as an occasion to develop an idea like this and to make some progress. And meanwhile, we as the United States can hope that the US will ratify the CBD in the first place, along with some other notable international conventions dealing with maritime issues. I'm done, thanks. Great, Tabitha, thanks. And stay, thanks for staying within your time. We've got some great questions we wanna discuss. Uh, Zhu Feng. Thank you, Steve. Uh, so thanks uh, all of you invite me and join such a great uh, panel. Um, I would like to share a couple of my observations, particularly uh, in this year. I think the South China Sea issue has never been more stormy and even provocative uh, to our bilateral relations. The reason is very simple. First is, I think the South China Sea uh, conflict actually has a very, very badly overtaken the Taiwan Strait issue. You know, when we look at the China-US dispute over the Taiwan issue, then at, at least we have had some sort of, we say, when China uh, policy consensus. Yes, the uh, Trump administration really blurred the line in the Chinese eye on how to just abide by the when China uh, principle or when China policy. But, uh, but, uh, but the problem is the Taiwan Strait is too much close to the Chinese uh, coast, then they will receive such a frequency and even just uh, how say uh, potential, uh, we say risk of accidental uh, encountering in air and at sea in Taiwan Strait has just approved to be much lower than in you know, the South China Sea. But what's the South China Sea for the uh, American Navy, the South China Sea mostly is uh, international water. It is very, very significant, so we say maritime credo. So then we will see, yes, probably uh, superficially, the Taiwan issue probably is more embarrassing, but actually for the two uh, uh, navals posture in the West Pacific, then we will have to say the South China Sea also proved to be the more significant and the more you know, the eye-catching for the both people and the and, and, and region as well. Then another factor is also very simple. 
I see the Washington and Beijing really had a very sternly different interpretation of uh, what's the coronavirus, you know, uh, geostrategic implications. In the eyes of our, you know, <coughs> Americans' uh, strategic community, then they see, you see the uh, pandemic is some sort of, we say, unique chance to uh, shift to the balance for power probability in China's favor. So then, and even some uh, politician uh, also mentioned the uh, pandemic is uh, Third World War launched by Chinese without just firing uh, any shots. So then <clears throat> I see there's uh, some sort of uh, strategic anxiety in the Americans' uh, political and strategic community. So there's no way US could allow the pandemic will reopen some sort of uh, a window of opportunity for China to just the house shorten some sort of uh, uh, power disparity between the two countries. So such a uh, anxiety also turning into some sort of a way say uh, greater military presence by the Americans Navy since the uh, early March. Then they will see Americans military presence and the, and, the, and the warship and the naval warship and the airplanes, you know, the patrolling in South China Sea almost a double from the, uh, them the last year's, you know, the, the, the presence in terms of its scale and its, we say, uh, frequency. So then such a thing really just, I would say, uh, very alarmingly uh, remind us if the both sides really just trying to move in some, some more assertive way to show their just the how say um, insurmountable resolve to uh, stick with their uh, claim in South China Sea, then we will see uh, South China Sea proved to be has never been more uh, potentially dangerous in terms of some sort of such a, a escalating possibility of in accidental, you know, the encountering and even clips, uh, 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 just uh, how say, some sort of, we say, uh, bumping at the sea and in air. Then we also know that back to 2001, the two uh, military jet, military planes also just did a very tragic, you know, mid-air collision. Then it caused the death of Chinese pilots and uh, emergency landing of American surveillance plane. If this year some sort of such accident, accidental encountering happened and a caused a shade of blood, that will be some sort of, in my term, is low the kill for some sort of uh, very, very bad, you know, the uh, deterioration of our relations. Then I think probably some sort of a, such a, a bloodshed will become the last straw to to very tragically and disastrously just smashed over bilateral relations. Then third one, I have to say, yes, if the USC pandemic is some sort of a possibly a window of opportunity for China to just have regained some sort of a favorable uh, balance of power shift, but in the eyes of the Chinese, we're also less sensible to some sort of uniqueness of a pandemic season in the region. Then the Beijing also can't wait longer to just launch the Chinese uh, Coast Guard ship to just uh, have say safeguard the China's claim in some sort of such a non uh, alarm friend area. Then yeah, of course cause some sort of we say uh, complaints and even we say criticism from the neighboring countries. 
But from the Beijing's perspective, we also see there's no way we can condone Americans' assertive you know, military presence in the South China Sea. Then we will see even politically, with the different and the very, very uh, stemly, you know, the, the, the contrasting, you know, the uh, interpretation on what the South China Sea mean in each, you know, the, uh, policy weighing, then some sort of such a potential of a collision is also surging. Then my conclusion is this. Um, given some sort of uh, a disastrous deterioration of our relations, then we will see the mood on either side is also getting uh, more volatile and probably is just a very aggressive. So then I see a lot of complaints from the Chinese side. Then I also uh, read a lot of complaints from the American side, particularly when the Trump just uh, uh, completely repeated his term, China virus, and holding the China accountable. Then we will see also such a, some sort of going a little bit further, such a overturned you know, political mood probably will accelerate some sort of, we say, such a less vigilance in their behavior. Yes, both mutually have the two memos. Then such a two memo also set in line for the either side to keep the safe distance when they encounter both in air and at sea. But given some sort of uh, such a significantly turning south mood, what worries me so much is this. Yeah. Then if the either side just uh, feel less, you know, completely restrained in their behavior, then any incidental encountering and the collision also will cause the black shade. Then even some sort okay. of such an environment, yeah, yeah, it will be very, very disastrous for our relations. Okay. So last one, yeah, Steve, is this year <laughs> there almost there is a suspension of the all level of the military contacts. Yeah. It also become a very, very timely remind. So maybe the whale maritime management in South China Sea needed to bring back the mill mill contacts. Thank you. Okay, great. Zhu Fang, thank you. Very, raised a lot of questions, which hopefully we'll get to in the Q&A. Let me turn it over to Peter. Thanks very much, Steve. Um, I'm, I'm going to offer a word of pessimism, a word of optimism, and a word of caution. Um, <laughs> so I'll start with a word of, uh, of pessimism. Um, look, uh, Assistant Secretary of, of State David Stilwell said China is engaged in a campaign to impose an order of might makes right in the South China Sea and to replace uh, international law there. It, it's hard to disagree with that. This is the word of pessimism. Um, we can talk about the details of international law and the way China's approach uh, undermines the global stability of international law. And we can also talk about China's coercion, power-based coercive actions in the South China Sea, uh, which in the end uh, end up holding hostage the, the interests of, of the uh, other coastal states in the region. And frankly, becomes the, the the driver of a lot of the dynamics in the South China Sea. Uh, the Chinese side has to realize that that a lot of its behavior is part of the problem uh, in the South China Sea. It's not just everyone else. It's also uh, and and significantly China's uh, behavior in the South China Sea. The word of optimism uh, has to do with some encouraging dynamics. Increasingly, over over the last decade or so, uh, there's been 
there's been a increasing move by other claimants in the South China Sea to, to use international law and to use international institutions um, to, to institutionalize their disputes, right? This is, a, I think, a very productive movement towards you know, the 20th and 21st century where we've, you know, we, we recognize that, that power-based outcomes um, are, are fundamentally destructive and uh, destabilizing to the international, uh, to the international regime. Uh, you know, since 2009, um, Vietnam and Malaysia have used the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf to make clear uh, their approach to the South China Sea based on international law. The Philippine arbitration reinforced many of these same uh, issues. And since 2019, uh, Malaysia has re-energized re, uh, its approach to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, um, um, resulting in this really important crescendo of international support for international law and use of institutions in the South China Sea to resolve those disputes. And so I come to the word of caution. And here I would actually like to address the very first question in the Q&A. Um, because um, the word of caution has to do with, uh, with, with undermining the, the globally stabilizing regime that the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea has, has brought us. Um, you might uh, legitimately fault the United States for failing to, to join uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, but at least you can't fault the United States for fully supporting its, in, its, its, its approach to international rights and freedoms in the maritime domain, right? This is a really important, uh, a really important point. And so the very first question actually in the, in the, in the Q&A queue has, has basically asked, well, isn't, the, isn't uh, China's approach to the South China Sea really no different from the American Monroe Doctrine in the 1890s and early uh, 1900s? Uh, and my response to that is, um, well, let's even assume it's true. I mean, it's a debatable point, but let's, e let's assume it's true. Hasn't, haven't um, human affairs come a long way in the last century and a quarter? Haven't uh, two world wars and a, and a nuclear armed Cold War taught us that power-based outcomes are not, that, that power-based outcomes are fundamentally destructive and destabilizing? And shouldn't we all be reinforcing international regimes that have brought clarity and stability to, to international rights and, and, and obligations in the maritime domain? Um, I think it's important to recognize, for all states to recognize, uh, that, uh, that, that China has, has interests in the South China Sea, but so do the other coastal states, and law makes clear what they are. Additionally, other states have interests in the South China Sea. The United States, UK, France, Germany, and many others, Australia, India, etc., have all made clear that this is a zone in which the international community has very important interests as well. So, uh, so my response to the, to the very first questioner is, um, I, I would hope we can all agree that human history has come a very long way since the power dynamics of the 1890s and 19, early 1900s that left us all in, in the shambles of the first half of the 20th century. And I'm hoping that the 21st century doesn't repeat that process. Terrific, Peter. In fact, you lay the a perfect foundation for my first question, which is based on, on Wu Xuchun's uh, kind of presentation. The, and what Taylor said, the, the um, Pompeo's speech with respect to the South China Sea and, and Assistant Secretary Stilwell's follow-up um, and then subsequent policies really didn't change the foundation 
of US policy yeah. in the South China Sea. That there is, and the idea that in a Biden administration, we're going to see a change in that policy. I would not, if I were sitting in your chair, think that is the case. There is virtually universal recognition in the US think tank community, government and academia that China is acting in violation of international law. And the pushback is gonna continue whether we have a President Trump or whether we have a President Biden. Uh, the sanctions, the only thing, you know, the sanctions, as Taylor pointed out, the sanctions that are being placed on SOEs that did the dredging in the South China Sea is a new policy. Uh, increasing US military presence in the South China Sea is really just a marginal change. That, that, that fundamental policy is there. So my question for President Wu and then for the Americans to, to comment on, are you suggesting we should have a new grand bargain that kind of the two sides should sit down and just come up with a new way to think about the South China Sea? Is that what your various, your, your points were aimed at suggesting? I think so. Uh... Both China and the United States should sit down to discuss the South China Sea, uh, both in the uh, chapter one level and even chapter two level. But now, in this administration, I mean, the Trump administration, I don't think it is the right time because so far, our chapter one dialogue mechanism. Now, no, all stop, all cancel. So, uh, I just mentioned U.S. China's policy from neutrality uh, in nineteen. From my perspective, nineteen ninety-five, when mischief accident was happening, before that time, U.S. you know holds this neutral neutral stance of South China Sea, and. From that time, U.S. adjusted its South China policy from neutrality to uh, limited intervention since 2010, when Hillary Clinton attended the ASEAN foreign minister meetings, announced the U.S. policy, U.S. new position towards South China. So that, since that time, U.S. South China policy adjusted from in limited intervention to active intervention. So Pompeo's statement is the sign that the United States is taking side to support whoever who would like to confront with, uh, with China on such an issue. So I don't think it's possible right now to, uh, to talk about the South China issue between China and the United States, but uh, it's necessary, even it's auditory to, to talk about the South China issue on how to avoid the potential conflict in the South China Sea, avoid the possibility of a fire off of the military confrontation in the South China Sea. Peter, did you want to add something on that? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Steve. So, I mean, I want to make it abundantly clear the US has never been neutral about uh, the application of international law to maritime rights and interests in the South China Sea. Um, and the United States has never been neutral about uh, its approach to uh, condemnation of power-based dynamics in, the, in, 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 
the way that um, China and the other uh, Southeast Asians resolve their disputes. Um, and so that's the first thing. Second, I, I want to remind our, our, our panelists and, and listeners that it was under um, the Obama administration, the first uh, uh, Obama administration, that the entire policy of pushing back uh, in the South China Sea became uh, became sort of heightened as a as a policy approach. So I don't think we're going to see any major change in U.S. policy, even if we have a change in administrations. Um, the third quick point to make is that I, I do agree with Wu Shutun in the sense that um, uh, going forward, after after the politics settles down from whatever happens in this election, um, uh, it will be time for a fresh conversation between the U.S. and China uh, about uh, managing um, the militarization of the South China Sea and managing the disputes in the South China Sea. Um, and, and I, but I think either side, uh, Republican or Democrat, will approach it in roughly the same way. I agree with that. Uh, Y.H. Sung asks a question. He's also a member of the Track 2 uh, dialogue that we have on these issues. Uh, China declares making the South China Sea into a sea of peace, friendship, and cooperation. ASEAN proposes to make the South China Sea a sea of peace, stability, and prosperity. Um, they both agree to maintain peace and stability in the South China Sea. What about the United States? Is it possible for the United States government to make a peace and cooperation proposal? Which maybe gets to exactly what Peter was suggesting, that when things settle down after the election, we should move in that direction. Peter or Tabitha or Taylor, you wanna answer that? I'll let, I'll let one of my colleagues, no? Um, I, I can jump in, I mean, I think, I think, you know, going back to the, 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 the initial statement in the Obama administration, I think, you know, maintaining peace in the South China Sea was an important part of US policy, right? Uh, and so um, one could make a, another declaratory statement to that effect. Um, they both sound good, what China says and what ASEAN says, but of course, uh, the real question is how, how do you put that into practice and what does it, what are the details, right? Um, and uh, yeah, the trends seem to be uh, uh, moving in, in the opposite direction. I do think, uh, for example, going back to some of the issues raised earlier, right? we, we do have uh, mechanisms in place, at least from a US-China uh, conflict perspective, like the MMCA and the MOUs, uh, that can be used as a basis for conversation because these were primarily designed to prevent incidents that would then uh, create, you know, lead to potential uh, miscalculation or escalation. And so um, certainly I, I think that the position of any US government would, would be that they would rather see peace and stability in the South China Sea than conflict and instability. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to add to that too. Uh, I think, you know, this is also related to the previous question that Steve asked about a new grand bargain or at least resetting the conversation. I think all sides do want peace and cooperation. Uh, I think Biden will not change the policy on the South China Sea or, or not change the problems at least that we're dealing with. But it, he, you know, if, if he were to become president, I think it will inject some stability and normalcy in the relationship, which I think will help. Uh, but honestly, I think what we all need is more candor about what is, is going on. And you know, like Peter said, 
recognizing that the other side has interests. You know, we, we need to talk about those interests more explicitly. We need to talk about what's behind some of the activities. And so when I think about uh, fishing activities, for example, I mean, there have been a lot of statements from all sides, including China, that there's a lot of potential here to come up with some kind of arrangement. Um, but if you look at, you know, for example, the, subs the huge subsidy program that China has to send fishing vessels down to the Spratly Islands, to fish, I mean, it's it's not. There, there's no way that this is economically profitable for China, nor is the catch that China is bringing in even co contributing any relevant percentage of China's protein needs. You know, it's it. it, it you know, if there were political will to establish some kind of arrangement, it probably would have happened already. And so, I think we just need to be more real about you know what the presence really is, and you know, some of these fishing vessels, which are actually maritime militia, aren't even really fishing. Um, and so I think we're not going to get to the heart of some of these problems unless we're able to talk about them in a very real way. So I'll just quickly add, Steve, if I might, um, you know, our mutual friend Jerry Cohen says, um, heaven's a wonderful place. The question is, how do you get there? Right. And so <laughs> and so the, the the point about, you know, the South China Sea as this as this wonderful nirvana is is a great idea. The question is, how do you get there? Right. And and uh, you know, uh, this is why I am actually in, in favor of Wu Shetun's proposal to, 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 to re-energize dialogues at all levels, track one, track two dialogues as a starting point, right? As a starting point to get there. And, and this is my hope that, that regardless of the outcome of the election, there'll be a fresh opportunity to relook at the possibility of, you know, of initiating these dialogues. I, I think there's, Zhu Feng, go ahead. And yeah, then and then let's go to the next question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think the key, uh, I think uncertainty is how serious Pentagon will be to conduct some sort of a, such a mill mill uh, relations with the Beijing. I think like Mr. Esper also mentioned in, in, in the July, yeah, he would like to visit China until the end of this year. I think his remarks also, um, I think very positively echoed from uh, China then I also see uh, even PLA also would like to see uh, Mr. Esper keep his words. But the problem is so far there's no, you know, the sign. The Pentagon would like to just uh, uh, get him back to the Beijing and uh, just uh, re-energize the mill mill uh, talk at some sort of a very important level. So I see the suspension for mill mill relations is some sort of uh, uh, consequence of a political deterioration or is some sort of the Pentagon's new subordination to the Trump's, you know, such a very mad and even aggressive, you know, style? It's my question for Peter. A quick response to Stephen's question on how to build such an SC as a peace and a cooperation. I think there are at least three preconditions to do so, uh, number one is to implement uh, the maritime cooperation in a, a contender in the DOC, for instance, environmental protection, uh, marine scientific research, search and rescue, and the safety of navigation. The second, uh, to reach consensus on the DOC as soon as possible to build the law based order in South China Sea. Why the international community concerned the South China Sea issue? Because it lacks the security architecture. So the COC, once it is in place, will uh, solve this problem. Uh, number three, the outside countries, particularly United States, not try to force 
asking member states to choose side between China and United States. Thank you. Three preconditions. Peter, did you want to add anything? I'm astonished to hear that we need to build a rule-based order in the South China Sea. We have a, a very workable rules-based order that has applied around the globe to good effect. All we need to do is apply it in the South China Sea and many of these problems go away. The uh, Bonnie Glazer has an interesting question for, uh, it's got a bunch of interesting questions, but this this one, I'll kick off with this one for for, for either Wu Shichun or Zhu Feng. Will China seek to prevent the Philippines from accepting bids from international energy companies to develop gas at Reed Bank? Is joint development with a Chinese company the only option available to the Philippine government? Yeah, I, I think Bonnie raised a very good question. Then we'll also see uh, the uh, Manila just to cancel the, any, you know, the restriction to the South China Sea based, you know, uh, gas and oil uh, exploration. Then uh, it also will just uh, how said, probably show uh, some sort of uh, 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 diplomatic, you know, progress between Beijing and Manila because it's a based on some sort of, uh, we say consensus, you know, some sort of such a uh, oil and gas exploration probably will through some sort of their consensus. But what does the consensus absolutely mean? It's just the, how say, the uh, exploration between Chinese and the Filipinos companies. I don't know, I don't think so. So like any concrete uh, project probably could involve the third party. I think it's 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 out of a question. So then my answer is that, yeah, I think uh, some sort of a consensus between Beijing and Manila will open the door for the uh, uh, you know participation of third parts or your company or third part country. Bushitrin, did you want to add anything on that? Uh, yes, uh, there was a successful case uh, of bi bilateral uh, cooperation. Uh, uh, so-called uh, joint development activities between China and the Philippines from the year 2005 to 2008. Uh, actually, it was uh, a tripartite uh, cooperation between China, the Philippines, and uh, Vietnam. Uh, so far, the bilateral cooperation uh, between the two oil companies of the Philippines and China uh, now is going smoothly I just uh, uh, find that just uh, yesterday, uh, the Philippine president uh, took out, uh, you know, canceled the restrictions on cooperation uh, foreign within the EEF Philippines. I think it, it was a good sign uh, to promote uh, such maritime cooperation between China and Philippines. We call it a joint development activities between uh, our two oil companies. From my perspective, uh, it's not an easy job to do so because uh, joint development uh, is so complicated and sensitive. The important issue is to select the place, which area is both accept acceptable for Chinese side and the PP side. So not easy in the future. Interesting. I have something I'd love to add to that too. So I know that this sounds possibly 
naive or unrealistic, but I think it's something that we have to get on the table and the idea must be floated. And that's the idea that we would leave the hydrocarbon in the seabed. Uh, you know, it's, it, I was in Seattle for a couple of weeks when I literally couldn't go outside because of our forest burning around us and the whole world is dealing with a lot of climate change issues. And I do think we're at the point where we have alternative solutions. It might mean rethinking, you know, some country stances on nuclear power, but I think there's a lot of potential there, hydrogen, uh, and I, I think it's something that we need to very seriously consider, despite all of you know, the uh, momentum going in the other direction to, to drill, drill, drill. Um, but I think it's something that needs to be on the table. Great, interesting. Um, let's see, President Wu, from your institution, from Hung Nung and, and Matt Garachi, um, what role is the Quad you know, United States, Japan, Australia, and India are going to play in the region's strategic competition in the coming years. Let's have one, one, either Wu Shichen or Ju Feng first speak to that, and then Peter Tabitha or Taylor speak to that. Yeah, I think the quarter is a big concern. Um, but the problem is, particularly after some sort of deterioration of our bilateral relations. Then we consider, for example, uh, a couple of the uh, top diplomats and even very important Pentagon officials also re-emphasize uh, the necessity of formation of the Asian version of NATO. So if a card called just the house, they become um, just another, uh, some sort of a multilateral realignment movement in the region, then of course, from the Chinese perspective, we will be uh, very, very uh, scared to be uh, completely uh, cornered. So that's also China's concern over the court, just the house they're surging. But on the other hand, we also consider it's not easy if the China could behave much better. So Peter and Taylor and uh, uh, Teresa also mentioned some sort of uh, Chinese needed some sort of get over behavior, you know, more welcome and a more, you know, base, uh, rule-based, uh, just oriented. So then I see the court maybe uh, just as in some sort of dynamic moment. But the problem is my confidence is absolutely lying on some sort of uh, China's Korean regional uh, economic and social uh, inference. On the other hand, I also see that China will be learning uh, how to uh, act more smartly. I have uh, had some thoughts. My concern is this uh, with regard to the quarter mechanism. Uh, initially, uh, quarter mechanism is applying to India Ocean, uh, but I'm not quite sure whether uh, uh, the quarter mechanism will apply to the South China Sea if the quarter cooperation mechanism uh, is applied to the South China Sea. I think China would take a different uh, to put that action in such and so in that case, uh, that it will not be conducive to such and such peace and stability. So far, the United States, Japan, and Australia have their military activity in such and sea, but India not yet send its uh, warships into such and sea. So it's my my concern. Uh, I'm some you know uh, worrisome to that case. Peter Tabitha, Peter, if you want to do that one or Taylor. So, um, I'm a little, I've lost a little bit of the thread, but I did see in some of the, the questions that there's a lot of questions about cues. And I, I do want to say a couple of things. First, 
um, my, my personal view is that, that cues should apply across the board, that um, if we can include Coast Guard ships, so much the better. Um, uh, and then secondly, um, I want to push back on something I think it was Ju Fung said and Bonnie Glazer raised in the questions, which is, um, which is what are the special circumstances under which China believes that uh, cues would not apply to military vessels in the South China Sea? It's those, in my view, it's exactly those special circumstances when it must be applied in order to ensure that we maintain stability between our militaries. The That's non-experts, please, please describe what cues are. Sorry, the code, it's, we keep talking about this. It's the code for unexpected or unanticipated- Unplanned, unplanned. Thank you, encounters at sea, right? So it's, it's, in other words, it's when, when one sovereign vessel, either Navy or Coast Guard vessel, encounters another, there's a certain sort of process you're supposed to, to, to operate uh, or, or to engage each other with in order to operate successfully, even in times of tension and crisis. And, and so to suggest that there are times of tensions and crisis when it shouldn't apply is, uh, is quite concerning. Ju Feng, I think you, you suggested that, or, or am I wrong? Yes. I did. Well, well, then, if you're asking for stability in the South China Sea, but saying China shouldn't follow the rules when there's, you know, conflict and crisis, isn't that escalatory? No, I, I, I think you know we all know how complicated the uh, South China Sea um, maritime uh, claims and even sovereign, uh, we say, assertion uh, among some sort of a very, very contending, you know, claimants. So then, I think the Chinese mostly feel very, very grievant because we consider we are the first country to just uh, made up some sort of a such a sovereign claims in a non dash line when we join it. Uh, back to 1946, we also got the consent from the State Department of the United States. But now we think with the time change, I think uh, some sort of a basic uh, strategic, you know, concern of our American friends American governments to the uh, East Asia also very, very dramatically changed. So then I have to say, yeah, I, I really, really love to see the China's growing resilience in handling the South China Sea. Rule-based order, of, of course, is also serving the China's interest fully. But on the other hand, we also see another uh, indispensable part of a regional order is also power-based. It's not a China only. Then we will see the U.S. is mostly just working on that regard. So then I really hope some sort of re-energization of the talks, not just the house multilaterally, but also bilaterally, and also could just trade some sort of, uh, we say, understanding and pragmatically gauge some sort of a new diplomat. You know, the breakthrough could just come true. I think it will be need a lot of passion and a lot of Western, but it's the only way we can get the South China Sea's conflict just to ease down. So uh, to respond to that, if I might, Steve, um, you know, in all seriousness, when, when those outside of China hear that China claims based on ancient history, um, the South China Sea, we think about, should that mean Rome claims all of the Mediterranean? No. <laughs> History moves forward and history and, and all of hum, human history moves forward along with the entire 20th century where together, along with the People's Republic of China, we created the institution of the, of, of the United Nations Convention on, on the Law of the Sea. China's 
the People's Republic of China helped to create that. All we're asking is that the People's Republic of China apply it in the South China Sea. Um, and, and it's deeply concerning to me to hear that you think that the, that the cues should not be applied in certain times of crisis. That's, that's significantly destabilizing in my view. Cues is absolutely necessary and, and, and insurmountable. Well, the problem is given some sort of a, such a, uh, we say more complicated situation and even just the scenario based, some sort of potential risk, the cues is not enough at all. So we need at least just uh, uh, resume the all level of the mill mill context. We need to get the two militaries to build their acquaintance. It's a very workable way to lower the hostility and the miscalculation. So Peter, from this point, I think Lacuse is important, but another way we should re-energize re some sort of old level of military talks. Even just four years ago, you know, so uh, Nanjing is China's Eastern military zone's headquarters. So I did a lot of interview there. They see, yeah, we have a very good military contacts with our American compass. So some sort of such a compass Contact is not just again then how say uh, dismissal uh, miscalculation. Most important thing is acquaintance building. The um, kind of a follow up question to that from another participant in our in our track two dialogue, Admiral Mike McDivitt. Is he he asks arguably U.S. China tension over the South China Sea would disappear almost overnight if China dropped its claim to historic rights in the associated nine-dash line. Do you think that's true? No, I, I totally I, disagree. <laughs> Please. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, nine-dash line uh, is uh, all China's claims based on the nine-dash line. Uh, historic rights is important for China claim, uh, uh, you know, over the maritime interesting such a religion. So I don't think it's impossible for China uh, to abandon uh, nine dash line, both nine dash line. Asking dash if line. it could be abandoned, that, that the historical rights, wouldn't tension dissipate? Because that's the basis of a, of a lot of the conflict. For China, China should, should make clear what the historical rights means. It is important, but it's impossible for China to abandon its historical rights claim. I think what China should do is make clear what does historical rights mean for China, for China's claim over the South China Sea, you know, both in uh, uh, maritime features and the maritime jurisdiction claims. I believe the Convention of the Law of the Sea specifies what what historical rights can, what claims you can make. Is that right, Peter or, or Taylor or Tabitha? Yeah, it's pretty clear. The Chinese have tried to find a way to to you know thread the needle outside of the convention, but in fact, um, you know that this this is not um, an approach to international law that that is accepted by either the arbitration panel or by by others. You know, fr frankly. Um, so China's claims to historic rights in the South China Sea have no basis in international law. And if, if they do clarify them, if they do clarify them, as Wu Shutsun suggests, at least we'll have a much better idea. M maybe there's some, you know, approach that could be accepted in international law. 
but so far, the broad claims that they've made just simply do not have a have a basis in international law. And I tend to agree with Admiral McDivitt that a lot of the problems would go away if China conformed its approach to the South China Sea to the convention. You know, some of the problems, not all of them, but also a significant proportion of the problems would go away if everyone were to decide to leave the hydrocarbon in the seabed. It's kind of what started everything off in the 70s to begin with, all the fighting. Yeah, I would say one, one point here, I think, I mean, I've heard it described the, the South China Sea disputes as sort of being supercharged because you have a you have territorial and maritime claims, plus you have shifting power dynamics. And so if if the nine dash line were to go away, that would remove a lot of the problems. But I think you'd still have kind of the, the foundational uh, shifting power dynamics, that, which certainly play out in the naval domain between the US and China in the South China Sea. And that would certainly stay. Uh, so it would be an improvement, but, but I don't think it would be um, a total and complete amelioration of the potential uh, for tensions in the South China Sea between China and the United States. So my view on that, Tabitha, is that I agree with Taylor. And the reason I do is that I think that the Chinese, fundamentally, the hydrocarbons in the South China Sea don't really make an economic difference, especially to China's economy. They do to, to some of the Southeast Asian economies, but mostly they don't to China's economy. My view is that the Chinese uses the disputes for purposes of, of status, right? To, to impose rule sets, to impose, um, to, or to achieve status in relationship to Southeast Asians. Uh, and, and that's really the fundamental dynamic that isn't going to change. Yeah, and I agree with all of that. You're not gonna solve all the problems, but you know, just in terms of thinking of new approaches. You have to be solid, right? Uh, if we look at uh, some international practices, the uh, historical rights are still with there. If we look at the case between Yemen and Anatolia, uh, arbitration case, uh, the tribunal accepted and recognized the historical rights between Yemen and Victoria case. Oh, so oh. I don't think that there, there was no basis in the international law of the historical rights. No, that's I've studied that case in, in great detail. That's a case in which both parties asked the tribunal to make a special accommodation for them. So this is that's a special accommodation, not a rule of international law. Um, so second, you, you said earlier, Wu Shutsun, that China could never abandon its historic rights in the South China Sea. I, I find I, I, that that's just not accurate. I mean, of course, China can. Taylor Fravel, our colleague here, maybe you want to talk to this, Taylor. You know, he, he's, he's written extensively on how China has, has resolved, you know, disputes with, over territory with other countries that, uh, you know, where China was, was uh, generous in its uh, relinquishing claims to, to, uh, to space. China has made many circumstances in the past where because it achieved a benefit from for doing so, it relinquished claims. I just want to make that point. I just, I don't think it's gonna be easy to get China to walk back on a, a very clearly stated policy that it's upheld for a long time. I mean, I think you, we just have to reframe the issue in a different way, essentially. It's one possibility, I think. Yeah, so then I think the latest cases we also know uh, there is uh, some sort of maritime dispute between the Turkish and the Greece uh, on the Eastern uh, Mediterranean, you know, oil and gas exploration. I think the, from, if you read the Turkish's claim, then it's also very, very obviously contain some sort of such a history based, their, you know, preoccupation in the Eastern uh, Mediterranean area. They have suffered a lot of uh, protesting 
around uh, 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 Greece. So then my view is this, or some sort of a, such a such cease disputes, couldn't it just absolutely just referring to, for example, NCROS. NCROS just very important legal instrument, but we also have other, you know, the uh, international legal instrument. Maybe we can also get, could then get them just a house and match up. Then uh, it's also the, the bigger impression I got from Chinese uh, uh, loyal and the legalist, you know, the community. So they always say now the, the U.S. just trying to overblown the Chinese South China Sea's claim just a very narrowly uh, 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 based on the uncross. But the problem is uncross is not all of international legal system. So Peter, do you agree with that? Yufeng, this is not a U.S.-China issue, right? This is this China versus Malaysia, Vietnam, Philippines, Brunei, uh, <laughs> Indonesia, yeah. uh, United States, United Kingdom, Germany, France, every one of these countries, right, has made clear how the rules of UNCLOS apply in the South China Sea. It's only China that is increasingly isolated in, in this in its in its approach to its claims in the South China Sea. We're not talking about sovereignty over islands. That's not mm -hmm. what we're talking about. We're talking about I boundaries in the water space. So China is increasingly isolated in that regard. Yes, I agree. So I see the China situation of the South China Sea is really deteriorating. So we need to show the flexibility. But the problem is just the ways we got to the Americans, you know, uh, reinforce the military presence in South China Sea to be a, a Chinese intellectual. I found it's getting harder for Chinese communities to re you know, uh, uh, enforce some sort of a, such a uh, supposedly, we say, uh, flexibility. I'm very honest. Yep. Yep. I have a question to my American colleagues about the Coast Supply to, uh, to Coast Guards. Uh, is it possible to reach consensus between our two Coast Guards to apply the Coast to Coast Guards? Uh, I, I what is the because as I know, the Chinese, you know, Coast Guard is now is reluctant to reach consensus with the U.S. counterpart on this issue. The, well, the, the base of Q's, right, is coal regs, and um, which are earlier regulations. So I think, in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't have a Coast Guard agreement that would apply the Q's principles, which themselves derive from other principles for maintaining sort of safety at sea. Uh, so I think it would be a political question, much more than a kind of a technical question. Yeah. By the way, speaking of of um, some of the law of the sea issues that that are kind of that are contentious between the United States and China, you know, uh, Mr. Bosco asks, do the Chinese participants believe that international support is growing for restrictions on military actions? By that, I think he means naval. Uh, ships going through uh, by other states in the EEZ. So the majority of states support the US position that military vessels can go in. There are a few states that side with China's position. Do you, Zhu Fang and Wu Shuchen, think that China is getting additional support for its position? Um, basically, no, I, I, I don't see that way. Then we'll see just uh, since the outbreak of the pandemic, the South China Sea situation is increasingly unfavorable to China. So I have to just, I uh, say, admit to this reality. 
That's why I, I, I really hope that the Beijing could show some sort of a growing flexibility and even creativeness, not just the, how say, stabilizing the South China Sea issue, also could just, I guess, get some sort of such a uh, increasingly disputable, you know, claims and become less disruptive and less disturbing to the China's uh, regional diplomacy and regional image. But on the other hand, I also see there's a very big part of a, such a growing contradiction. And then see, for example, so US also just the Hussey uh, initiated the Indo-Pacific strategy. And so far, China just uh, takes such a strategy as uh, some sort of uh, uh, fully China targeting and uh, China containing. So then uh, even now in the Chinese official vocabulary, there's no some sort of such a acceptance of the, the words of uh, Indo-Pacific. We still use Asia-Pacific. So some sort of a, such a exclusion of the Indo-Pacific from Chinese official uh, vocabulary, then we will see it's a, some sort of a Chinese growing uh, uh, alarming, we say, uh, the, the vigilance. So then, yes, uh, practically, we will see there's uh, some sort of uh, such a uh, operable way to narrow down the, 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 the gap among the different sides. But what's just got me very sad, got me very saddening is I see some sort of a real gap is still widening. How would China respond if Vietnam seeks arbitration through UNCLOS to determine resource rights in Vanguard Bank? That, that question is from our track two dialogue participant, Isaac Barton. Yeah. Uh, I don't think uh, Vietnam right now uh, would do so to file another arbitration case to either ITROS or ICJ uh, because uh, China and Vietnam, we have consensus to solve the relevant disputes of such an issue through a bilateral approach. So if Vietnam uh, would do so, it violates the consensus reached by uh, our two countries. Uh, if in the case, Vietnam insists to do so, I think the Chinese position will uh, have no change uh, compared with the Philippine arbitration case. Uh, no participation, no acceptance. Let me, we're running low on time. So, and I think there's some interesting consensus that have emerged from this discussion. One is we need we need more track ones and track twos on on South China Sea issues. Uh, we need a rethink of policies. Both governments need to kind of think about it. There's certainly a consensus on the American side that no matter who was president on January 21st, 2021, the U.S. policy on the South China Sea is not going to go. Uh, and not gonna have a wholesale shift. So my question is actually related to now through January 20th, a period where I think, you know, President Wu, uh, Zhu Feng and others have kind of stated, we're really nervous. What's one thing that we should do to avoid uh, a kinetic incident 
between now and, and January 20th. Um, and whichever order, just put up your hand if you wanna take a stab at that one. Wu Chen, your hand was up first. Yeah, yeah. It is important, both China and United States, particularly United States should exercise the strength to you know, take provocative actions in the South China Sea region from now on till next January, because this time is the key time for us to maintain peace and stability in South China Sea. So it's important to exercise strength, not to take the provocative actions targeting at the last time. I just mentioned in my presentation what United States should do, what China should do, keep restraint. Try our best to Peter. avoid, you know, fire off potential possibility. I think, uh, Steve, thanks. I think, uh, first of all, I need to say uh, everything I've said today are my own personal views, not meant to represent the US government's views. But, um, the number one thing that we need to do is to follow the rules at all times. Follow the rules, the, the code for unplanned encounters at sea, the call regs, et cetera, follow them at all times. That's how you maintain stability, even in terms, uh, even in times of crisis and tension. So uh, if this is a particularly volatile time, it becomes especially important to Feng that we all follow the rules at all times. Yes. So uh, quickly, just to add, I think there's a broadly shared conspiracy theory, so-called conspiracy theory in China. Before the power transition uh, by the uh, next uh, January 20, probably Trump, if he loses the election, if he want to just, uh, how say, tie up some sort of his uh, lower in the polling, he may just uh, try to just uh, hijack the China as uh, some sort of leading uh, factor he can just to force the entire Americans to reunify. So that means he probably will risk just creating some sort of a military context, military conflicts with the Chinese and turning China factor into China crisis. Such a conspiracy, such a conspiracy theory will come to. So it's our bigger concern. Bill or Tabitha, anything you want to add? I just want to echo what, what Peter said and also add that at least uh, one thing in the favor of stability also is the weather, which deteriorates in the South China Sea uh, this time of year and hopefully keeps uh, ships even farther apart from each other than they would otherwise normally be. But again, the best way to maintain stability is to follow uh, the rules that both sides have agreed upon. Restraint, uh, which Dr. Wu mentions also is 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 mutual, right? So it's not uh, simply that one side or the other side should be restrained, but if both sides are worried about maintaining stability, then that should be shared to include um, uh, actions China might potentially take in the EEZs of other countries during this period. And then finally, uh, on, on conspiracy theories, um, I mean, like I, lo I love reading a great novel. It's hard to know what to make of any of these, um, but one has to ask what would the real benefit be in the end for the president of the United States. And, and usually these conspiracy theories just end with no benefit. I don't think I would put much uh, stock uh, in, in those stories, uh, Chufong. Mm -hmm. 
I guess I, I would I would add that I, I agree with the other commenters that following the rules is important. I've also heard from other Chinese counterparts that you know, they're aware that this is a really tense time for the United States. Um, and so I think that awareness is good. And then otherwise, I think, you know, just laying the, the groundwork for, you know, expanding dialogues, figuring out ways, you know, possibly at, at you know, at, well, at all levels um, in which we can find areas for cooperation and try to make some progress. I want to thank the panelists. Not only were you great panelists today, uh, your great participants in our track through dialogue. I want to thank Wu Shichen and, and Zhu Feng for staying up so late to be with us and to educate uh, our audience. And I want to thank you for the partnership that you have with the National Committee, that no matter what goes on on the government to government levels, we are strong believers in having these discussions on a track two level. And it is critical that at a time when there's great tension in the government to government uh, level that we continue to have these dialogues and we value that partnership and we'll, and we'll continue it. But thank you all. I've kept two of you up way, way, probably way past your bedtime, but thank you all. And thank you for participating in our, in our track twos. And I thank the audience who all have stayed throughout uh, for, for joining us today. Thanks all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.